Our sermon this morning is from Daniel chapter 12, so turn there in your Bibles if you have them. If not, grab a pew Bible in front of you. You can find Daniel chapter 12 on page 702, uh, or flip open your, your bulletin. You can, you can see the text listed there as, as well. We've been working through the book of Daniel for the last few months, um, pretty much been spending one week on each chapter, and so now we're in the 12th uh, chapter, and this will be our last, uh, our last sermon on the book of Daniel. So um, we saw, you know, Daniel 1, uh, Daniel and his friends were taken from their home in Jerusalem, brought into exile in, in Babylon, Daniel chapter 2, the king has a dream and Daniel interprets it as being about these future earthly kingdoms uh, that are going to come one after the other and then ultimately give way to God's eternal uh, kingdom, Daniel 3 was the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who are told to worship this golden image, and when they don't, uh, told that if they don't, they're going to be thrown into a fiery furnace. They refuse to, and the Lord spares them from it. Daniel chapter 4 is the humbling of King Nebuchadnezzar. He's prideful and arrogant, so God casts him into the wilderness uh, until he humbles himself, and then God restores him and brings him back. Daniel chapter 5 was... Uh, the death of King Belshazzar, who is also prideful and arrogant and has this, this party and defiance against God, and God kills him for it. Daniel 6, um, the lion's den story we're probably familiar with. Daniel uh, refuses to, you know, Dan- Daniel prays to God despite being told not to. He's thrown into a lion's den, and God spares him, similar to how he spared Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Daniel 7, now Daniel has a dream about these uh, same human kingdoms that give way to God's eternal kingdom. Daniel 8 uh, zooms in on two of them in particular, Persia and Greece, and we kind of see their story and the developments therein. Daniel 9, Daniel is praying, and as he's praying, an angel comes and kind of, uh, you know, speaks to him and gives him uh, greater insight into um, how God is going to come to earth and the judgment that he's going to bring against sin when he establishes his kingdom. Daniel 10 through, 10 through 12 are all kind of one, uh, you know, joint uh, vision, revelation, as it were. And so um, uh, uh, Daniel has this vision of an angelic figure who tells him of his dealings with Persia and Greece. And then in chapter 11 gets really specific into all of these prophecies that are going to happen in Persia and then in Greece and then in, and then in the Syrian wars that are kind of some, you know, intramural conflicts within several dynasties uh, in, in the Greek uh, empire. And that brings us to Daniel chapter 12, which is where we're at today, uh, where we're going to kind of fast forward and look specifically at the time of the end, right? Um, the, the book as a whole, like kind of Daniel, kind of 1 through 12, kind of as a whole, kind of has this main overarching theme that even though God has sent his people into exile, which is what we saw in chapter 1, God is still sovereign over everything. So we see in chapters 2 and 7 through 9. And God is going to judge and humble those who stand in rebellion against him. That's 4 and 5. And, and, and he's going to graciously redeem and save his people. That's 3 and 6. And ultimately bring them home out of exile to be with him forever. It's 10 through 12. So, so uh, even though God has sent his people into exile, he's still sovereign. He's still going to bring judgment against sin. He's still going to save his people. And he's going to bring them home to be with him. That's kind of the, the broad strokes of the book of, of uh, Daniel, right? When you're... When we are experiencing suffering and persecution, 
We can hang in there because we can know and trust that God is sovereign. So, we're going to look today at uh, Daniel chapter 12. I'm going to pray, and then we're just going to walk through it uh, verse by verse. There's about 13 verses, and we're going to spend some time on it. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is true. We thank you that it is profitable for teaching and reproof and correction and training. And Lord, we come before you this morning uh, open to receiving your word and being taught by it. And Lord, we pray that you would speak to us and that you would teach us through it. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Okay, verse 1. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. If you remember back to verse 10, uh, there's another angel, not Michael, but another angel that's talking to Daniel right now. Some scholars speculate that it uh, might be Gabriel, the one who was mentioned in Daniel chapter 8. Uh, and nine, and the one who um, who we see later in uh, the New Testament, uh, you know, in, in Luke chapter two. Uh, but anyway, so this angel speaking, and he says um, that uh, the the angel Michael is going to arise at that uh, at that time, and so Michael um, is apparently uh, an angelic being, but he's specifically kind of a a a high-ranking one. He's the great prince or the chief prince. Um, and so uh, he, presumably Michael is, of all of the angels that exist, he's maybe one of the most powerful or the most uh, glorious. And apparently uh, Michael also has a specific task, a specific charge of um, watching over, looking after the people of God, the nation of of Israel. And so that seems to be uh, who Michael is and kind of what he's there to to do. And so this angel is saying, at that time, at the time of the end, uh, a Michael is going to arise who has charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as has never been since there was a nation until that time. So prior to or before the end of human history, right, as that is drawing. Uh, near, before Jesus returns to judge his enemies and to save his people. Prior to that, could be a series of weeks or months or years or decades or centuries, not entirely sure, but for some time prior to that, there is going to be uh, intense trouble, like really bad, really intense, suffering, persecution, such as has never been seen in all of human history. Uh, verses like these are where, you know, a lot of theologians kind of like to weigh in and, and have, uh, you know, different camps or different belief systems to say exactly what it, what it means. Um, there's one camp called, it's a mouthful, dispensational premillennialism. So you don't have to worry about remembering it. There's not a test or anything, but there's a camp called dispensational premillennialism that says... Those times of trouble that, that are being referred to right here in Daniel 12, 1 uh, is, a, is a specific seven-year period called the tribulation. It's going to happen after this thing called the rapture, right? If you've seen the Left Behind movies, all the Christians are going to be vanished. Their clothes are going to, you know, whatever, be left in a little folded pile. Warning, in case of rapture, this car will be unmanned, all that stuff. So there's a rapture. 
then there's a, a seven-year period of tribulation that this is referring to. Um, and that's going to happen between the rapture and then between when Jesus comes back uh, in his final return. If I'm being honest, I'm not entirely uh, convinced by the dispensational premillennial uh, position. It seems to be a little too certain and a little too specific in areas where I think the scriptures aren't quite as clear as they would need to be. There's another camp called uh, postmillennialism, which basically says that, uh, that, the, that we're living right now in the kingdom, as it, as it were. So it's our job as Christians to usher in the kingdom and build it and make it happen through our influence in the world. And that as we do, we should expect and we will see that the world around us gets better and better, more and more godly, the further that we get through human history and the closer that we get to the return of Christ. I'm also not convinced of post-millennialism just because, um, well, I don't, you know, I don't know about you, but I... I don't see the world getting better and better necessarily because of uh, the influence of Christianity in the world. In a lot of ways, I see it getting worse and worse and moving further from God. But also, postmillennialism has a difficulty interpreting verse 1 because Daniel 12.1 seems to imply that the worst it's ever going to be is going to be right before Jesus comes back, right before the end of human history, as opposed to things getting progressively better and better until we just kind of, you know, gradually slip into the, the you know, G- Jesus's return. It seems like it's going to get worse and worse, and then Jesus is going to come and intervene and kind of restore and right, make, make everything right. So I'm not entirely convinced by dispensational premillennialism or by post-millennialism. Uh, There's other, you know, uh, views as well, like historic premillennialism or amillennialism, that I probably think might be a little more likely. But all of them have a lot of speculation kind of built into them. All of them have questions that they find difficult to, to answer. But what we can tell, what I think we can be very confident on from Daniel 12.1, apart from all of the different camps and how they interpret it, is that there is going to be... Uh, suffering and persecution, intense, difficult suffering and persecution for the people of God uh, for some period of time prior to the end of human history, prior to Jesus's return. So I think that we very well could be in that time of suffering right now. For all I know, this uh, time of trouble that's being referred to here could uh, refer to the entirety of of the span of time between Jesus' first coming and his uh, second coming. Either way, uh, the angel seems to be telling Daniel, the people of God are going to suffer, so prepare for it. Get used to the idea. It's going to happen. There's going to be a time of trouble that has, that's worse than it has ever been before. But, but at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name is found written in the books. It's not all bad news that there's a time of trouble that's going to be worse than anything ever before. There's also good news that, that God is going to deliver his people from the trouble that they are going to experience. Even though the suffering is great, even though the trouble is worse than it's ever been before, God is going to deliver his people. We live in a world We live in a society, we live in a cultural moment that does not like to suffer. We don't want to suffer, we want to run 
from suffering. We feel entitled to a life that is void of suffering. If and when we do suffer, we instinctively conclude that something must have gone wrong or someone must have made a mistake or God himself must have made a mistake. The world that we live in trains us to resent suffering and resist suffering and feel as if suffering is strange or abnormal. But the Bible does not speak about suffering in this way. The Bible doesn't see suffering as something we should try to avoid or get out of or something that uh, you know, is, is atypical or you know, an, an aberration that we should not have expected. The Bible sees suffering as, as something that is to be expected, uh, intrinsic to the human experience, and something that we should not try to get out of, but rather try to get through with the presence of the, the Holy Spirit, right, with Jesus kind of leading us and guiding us through it. Because we know that suffering was ordained by a God who loves us and wants good for us and who is able to work all things for our good. 1 Peter 4 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial, suffering, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you as though something strange were happening to you, but rather rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of the glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or a meddler. Yet if any of you suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So when we suffer, it's not as though something strange is happening to us. It's not an aberration. It's not a mistake. It's God's sovereign will and plan. But God is also not going to leave us there alone in our suffering. He's not going to abandon us in our suffering. He's going to be with us and he's going to deliver us from it. So people should be delivered. Everyone whose name is found written in the book of life. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to everlasting shame and Everlast, or some to shame and everlasting contempt. So verse 2 here speaks about a spiritual reality, a theological doctrine that is profoundly uh, important, that this life is not all that there is, that at the end of human history, like human history is moving somewhere, driving somewhere toward a telos, toward an appointed end, right? It's, it's going somewhere, and that at the end of human history, God himself is going to return. Everyone who's ever lived is going to be resurrected from the dead. Their bodies are going to get up out of the grave. They're going to stand before God and give an account for how they lived their life in this world. That everyone who's trusted in God is going to be saved to everlasting life. Everyone who's persisted in their rebellion of God is going to be, uh, you know, consigned to uh, an eternity apart from him. So there's like profoundly important theological doctrine packed into verse 2 here. And there's a ton of religions and worldviews and belief systems that teach all sorts of things explicitly contrary to 
what the Bible teaches about our souls and, and eternity. There's a secular materialism that says there's no such thing as a soul, no spirit. There's a body. There's just the physical. That's it. You, you, the sum total of your personhood is a, is a, you know, a clump of cells, a mass of biomatter. And when you die, you just go back to the same state of non-existence that you were before you were born. According to verse 2, that's not true. That's false teaching. There's uh, religions that teach universalism, that every single person is eventually going to go to heaven or whatever their version of heaven is. Maybe not right away. Maybe the good people get there sooner and the bad people, it takes longer. Maybe they have to go to purgatory or someone has to pray or give money so that they can get out. But, But eventually, every single person is ultimately going to end up in heaven or whatever their version of heaven is. According to verse 2, that is not true. That's false teaching. Uh, some religions teach annihilationism. So there's good people that do the right thing, believe the right thing. They go to heaven. They have an enjoyable eternity. Then there's other people that were not saved, but they don't go to hell because a good and loving God would never allow people to go to hell. So instead, they just, get, they just cease to exist forever. They're just snuffed out, kind of like the secular person thinks happens to everyone, right? They just stop e- existing. The catch is that that belief is difficult to reconcile with the doctrine of the image of God, that God has created us in his image with intellect and emotion and will and agency and responsibility and the capacity to live forever. Because forever is how long it takes to pay the penalty for your sins against an infinitely holy God, or forever is how long it takes to explore the the depths of and to to enjoy and appreciate the glory of uh, an infinitely glorious God. So, um, yeah, annihilationism, according to Daniel 12.2, is not true. Reincarnation, right? When you die, you uh, are, you know, promptly reincarnated as some other person or living being or even inanimate object. And so we're all just on this infinite cycle of life and death and rebirth and life and death and rebirth over and over and over. Interestingly, a lot of the religions that teach reincarnation actually see life here as like just insufferably, obnoxiously boring and long and like a, like a movie, like a, like a crappy movie that you just have to sit through and it never ends right? A graduation ceremony for people you don't know that just never ends, just over and over and over. And so, so the, the idea is like, we don't want to live it. We want to get out. We want to, and so we want to stop the cycle of life, birth, life, death, rebirth. So we want to break the cycle and get out of it. And it's called moksha or nirvana or whatever, you know, whatever, whatever the particular religion says. According to Daniel 12.2, that's not true, right? This verse teaches, along with the rest of the Bible, that human beings were created in God's image, specially and specifically by God, to live forever, to live for all of eternity. God's intention is for us to live forever with him in his presence. But because of our sin, we can no longer live eternally in God's presence like we would have been able to prior to the fall. Because of our sin, we've been separated from God, 
and now we are going to uh, experience the judgment and wrath of God unless God saves us from our sin, which God does through the person and work of Jesus who dies in our place, satisfies the wrath of God on our behalf so that we can enjoy the life and the reward that he has earned. So what the Bible teaches about life and our soul and eternity is utterly irreconcilable with secular materialism or universalism or annihilationism or reincarnation or anything like like that. The idea is, the, the picture that the Bible paints is, before you were born, you just didn't exist. There's no like pre-existence that you don't remember or anything like that. You just didn't exist. God, for, before you were born, God foreknew you in the sense that he knew that he was going to create you and he loved you already even before he created you. And then God created you. He knit you together in your mother's womb. So you were made with, uh, you know, in God's image with inherent dignity and value and worth. After a child's born, they develop into a child. They go through this God-ordained process of growth and maturity and individuation into adulthood. At some point, they die. Their body is buried in the ground. And then when they die, when their body is buried, their soul leaves their body and immediately goes to one of two places, either directly into the presence of the Lord if they trust in Christ, or if if they don't trust in Christ, then they are separated from God into judgment. It kind of remains that way, body in the ground, soul in one of those two places, until the end of human history. And that's where, that's where verse 2 picks up. At the end of human her- history, our souls are, or our bodies are resurrected out of the ground. They're reunited with our souls so that we can then, with this new newly restored resurrection body that's been reunited with our soul, we can inhabit the new heavens and the new earth for all of eternity, or we will experience conscious punishment and judgment for all of eternity. It's what Daniel 12, 2 teaches. It's what we see in Revelation 20, 21, 22. So that's the theological doctrine that we're seeing in here in verse 2, but Practically, the application of that doctrine is of profound importance, and I don't want us to rush by it, right? I don't want us to just read that at the end of human history, uh, those who sleep in the dust of the earth will wake up, some to everlasting death, some to everlasting contempt, and then just, okay, let's move on. Like, there is profound application for how we live our lives today, right now, because of Daniel 12, 2. Right? If, this verse, if, if verse 2 is true, then it means that your life here in this world, 70, 80 years that you have to live here in this world, is a fraction of a percentage of uh, the first millionth, billionth, trillionth of time, of the total amount of time that you have as a conscious being over the course of eternity. Your life here in this world, if it, your, your total time of consciousness in eternity is this vast line that just goes on forever and ever and ever, and your life here in this world is a microscopic, infinitesimal dot on the front end of that uh, never-ending line. And 
Verse 2 also implies that what you say, what you do, how you live your life right here, right now, in this life, in this world, affects and, and informs your experience of life in eternity. Right? How you live during these 80 years is going to affect what you experience for trillions and trillions of years that follow. Which puts things like suffering, things like self-denial into a new perspective, right? They, all of a sudden, they look a lot less like a loss on a balance sheet that we should avoid at all costs, and they look more like an investment that's going to yield a return, a far greater return than the investment cost us in the first place. Imagine, imagine you're in a situation. Imagine that, imagine you're in a desperate situation, lost your job, lost your, you know, your safety net, your extended family, you're, you have no way to provide for yourself or for your dependents, you're staring down a lifetime of poverty and destitution and starvation and suffering. That's, that's your situation. And then Warren Buffett walks up to you, who's got billions of dollars, and says, I heard about your situation. I'm a man of means. I'd like to do something to help. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do one of two things. It's your option, which one you would like for me to do. On the one hand, I'll give you all of my money. I'll just you know, sign it over to you, billions and billions of dollars. It's all yours. Everything that you could ever need, everything that you could ever want for the rest of your life, if you let me kick you in the shin as hard as I can. Because I've always wanted to do that. And I, you know, what am I going to do with it? What am I going to do with all my money? So option one, I kick you in the shin as hard as I can. You get all my money. Option two is I just give you a lollipop and we call it a day. Like I'm feeling generous. So I'm going to give you this lollipop. And then that, so you can either have a lollipop right now and enjoy it for a moment. And then you'll be broke and starving and suffering terribly for the rest of your life. Or you can get kicked in the shin right now and it will hurt for a moment. And then you'll have everything that you could ever need or want for the rest of your life. So that scenario, which seems silly and absurd, but that scenario is, doesn't even scratch the surface of, the, of the, the actual real life scenario that we are all in, which is that we have a few short decades of, that we can kind of structure however we, we want, right? We can, we can live for this life. This life is all I care about. My only purpose is to live my best life right here, right now. Self, self-importance, self-indulgence, which is a lot like eating a lollipop. It'll be gone in a few short years, and then we will experience judgment and wrath from a sovereign God for all of eternity. Or we can choose instead to live for eternity instead of for this life, turning from our sin, trusting in Jesus, living a life of self-denial and costly discipleship and persevering through suffering, but then it passes. And then we have eternity in heaven with God. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4 that 
the light and momentary troubles that we experience in this life, the light and momentary troubles, are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweigh them. And because of that, we should fix our eyes not on what is seen, not on the troubles here of this world, but what on, is, on what is unseen, right? The things that we see are temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. So the application is, you are going to live forever. The question is where and how and in what capacity. And so my exhortation to you, my plea that I'm coming to you with is to live your life here, right now, in this world, not as an end in itself, not for this world only, but live your life here as an investment in eternity by turning from your sin and trusting in Jesus and following him even when it is difficult, even when it is costly. Verse 3, And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Meaning that, uh, right, wise, the wise people are those who walk with God, those people who live in this life in light of eternity, live for eternity instead of this world. Those who turn many to righteousness means that those people who share their faith and, and lead other people to Christ and disciple them and try to help them to follow Jesus, those people are going to shine like stars in the presence of King Jesus, beholding and experiencing his glory forever and ever. Verse 4, but you, Daniel, shut up the words in, and seal this book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Meaning that up until this point in the book, Daniel, we've seen a lot of prophecies, many of which dealt with specific times and areas in human history, many of which have already come and gone before 2023, right? They weren't about the time of the end, per se, right? Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, Alexander the Great, the Syrian Wars, Antiochus, Epiphanes, the Maccabean Revolt, right? There's a lot of prophecy here that wasn't about the end times, per se, but this is about the, the time of the end, and prior to the time of the end, knowledge is going to increase, which is exactly what we're observing now. Information, communication, science, technology, internet, artificial intelligence, machine learning. Right? If you zoom out and look at humanity as an objective third party, it would look a lot like a species running to and fro, and increasing exponentially in knowledge. Not necessarily getting better, not necessarily getting wiser, but acquiring more and more knowledge. Verse 5, Then I, Daniel, I looked, and behold, two others stood, one on this bank of the stream and one on that bank of the stream. If you remember back to chapter 10, the stream he's referring to is the Tigris River. 
An angel comes and joins him there. Now there's two more angels that come and join him, one on either side. Verse 6, And someone said to the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the stream, this is probably the same guy that we met in chapter 10, verse 5, someone says to him, How long shall it be until the end of these wonders? Right? All the stuff you're talking about, times of trouble, end of human history, final resurrection, salvation of God's people, judgment of God's enemies, how long until all that happens? Verse 7, And I heard the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the stream. He raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven, and swore by him who lives forever that it would be a time, times, and half a time, and that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be finished. So how long until all of it happens? A time, times, and half a time. So three and a half periods of time. Three and a half years, three and a half months, days, decades. I don't, I'm not sure. Um, yeah, it's, a, you know, it's, it's tough, tough to say. This is another place where a lot of people have a lot of ideas on what exactly it means, and, and a lot of them are very certain on it. So some say this obviously means 3.5 years. Time times half a time. We could say one year plus two years plus a half a year. That's three and a half years, which tracks because they say back in Daniel 7... We saw that same phrase, time, times, and half a time. Uh, Up in Revelation chapter 12, we see that same phrase. And that makes sense because in Daniel 9, we saw this reference to uh, 77s, which we understand to be 70 periods of seven years each, so 490 years total, 69 of which are accounted for, but there's one that's left over, so that must be the seven years that happen uh, the tribulation, right? The, the seven years that happened between the rapture and the coming of Christ. And so halfway through that is some sort of thing that happens. And so it's kind of divided into two, three and a half year periods. They also look at Daniel 8, where there was a reference to 2,300 days. And they're like, oh, that's convenient. Divide that by 365. It's not seven, but it's close. So I don't know, you know, maybe leap year or something. So some guys say this is referring to half of that tribulation period. Again, I'm not entirely convinced. Um, I'm not entirely sure what the time, times, and half a time is referring to. I'm not even sure that we're supposed to know. And the reason why I think that is because of what Daniel says in verse 8. He doesn't know either. So in verse 8, he says, I heard, but I didn't understand. So I don't know what that means. What is a time, times, and like what shall the outcome uh, be of these things. So thanks for the tip, but I still don't understand what you're talking about. Verse 9, he says, go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Same thing he said back in verse 4, right? So this prophecy is referring specifically to the end of human history, to the events surrounding the final return of Christ to bring salvation to his people and judgment for his enemies to restore all things and to establish his kingdom. Many shall purify, verse 10, many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly. Meaning, between now, when Daniel's receiving this prophecy, and the end of all things, the end of human history, there's going to be godly people who are trusting in Jesus and who are experiencing sanctification and they're, they're becoming pure and white and refined and there's going to be wicked people, ungodly people who don't trust in Christ and they are going to act wickedly. 
So don't be surprised by the inevitability that there's godly people who love the gospel and there are wicked people who do not love the gospel, right? That's what we've seen all the way from Genesis 3 all the way through until here in Daniel, all the way forward to the book of Romans, the book of Revelation, kind of etc. right? And it also tracks with what we observe in the world around us, that there are people who love Jesus and who have persevered through persecution, and there are people who are opposed to God and opposed to the gospel, and they have continued in that opposition despite evidence to the contrary, no matter how much the church loves them and, and serves them. And, and none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. Meaning that if you're a Christian, this idea that there are Christians who love God and pursue godliness and non-Christians who rebel against God and who act wickedly, that shouldn't be a surprise. When you're a Christian, you shouldn't expect non-Christians to believe and act like you do as a Christian. You should expect and not be surprised when they act like non-Christians. Non-Christians are expected to not understand. They're probably not going to realize the extent of their sin and their rebellion, but Christians should go into it with open with open eyes. Verse 11, And then, from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. And so, again, that uh, burnt offering stopping and the abomination that makes desolate, uh, it could be a reference to Antiochus Epiphanes in the intertestamental period, kind of um, desecrating the temple and putting a statue of Zeus Uh, in the temple and sacrificing a pig in the temple, or it could be a reference to some future thing that's going to happen, um, you know, with some uh, figure that people, uh, you know, refer to as the Antichrist or both, not entirely sure. But from the time that that happens, there shall be 1,290 days. Again, no problem. Know exactly what that means. 1,290 days. That's basically 3.5 years, give or take. So that is equivalent with the same thing from before, the time, times, half a time. Well, hold on, because then it says, and blessed is he who waits and arrives at the end of the 1,335 days. So which is it 1,290 days, or is it 1,335 days? On top of that, the book of Revelation has reference to a period of time that's 1,260 days. What's that about? Is it, is it 3.5 years like we see in Daniel 7, Daniel 12, Revelation 12? Or is it 1,260 days like we see in Revelation 12, 6? Or is it 1,290 days like we see in verse 11? Or is it 1,335 days like we see in verse 12? And what do each of those things refer to? Do they refer to the same period of time or different periods of time? When do they start? When do they stop? Do they overlap at all? I don't know. That's my point. This is all weird and strange and ambiguous, and it's really difficult to know for sure what exactly uh, it, it, it means, which is, I think, why Daniel said, I heard you, but I don't understand what you were saying because this is difficult to interpret. Which is why I tend to think that people who are 100% certain that they know exactly what texts like this mean and exactly how to interpret it, I think they might be overplaying their hand a little bit because I don't think that we can know exactly what these numbers mean or stand for. I'm not even sure that we're supposed to know what they mean or what they 
they stand for. But here's what we can know with confidence, verse 13. But you, Daniel, you are to go your way until the end, and then you shall rest, and you shall stand in your allotted place at the end of days. Go your way means to be faithful, turn away from sin, trust in God, walk with God, persevere until you die or until Jesus comes back at the end of human history, and then you will stand in your allotted place. Meaning if your name is written in the book of life, from verse 1, then your allotted place is everlasting life. Verse 2, shining like the stars forever and ever. Verse 3. Or if your name is not written in the book, verse 1, then your allotted place is everlasting shame and contempt. Which essentially sums up the main thrust of the book of, of Daniel, right? In this world, you are going to suffer. You're going to experience persecution. You're going to walk through difficult times. You're going to be tempted to think that God has abandoned you, just like Daniel probably felt right here, right now, that God had abandoned him when he was uh, under the dominion of a foreign power that was hostile to him and hostile to God. You are going to suffer and experience persecution. And when you do, go your way. Be Faithful, stand firm, trust in God, walk with God, believe the gospel, persevere in the faith, because at the end of this life that is marked by suffering, at the end of this life you're going to die, and on the other end of that death is eternity, which is forever. And so right now, while you're suffering in this life, God is holding you, he's keeping you, he's preserving you so that you can persevere with him. We don't know exactly what's going to happen between now and then. We can make some guesses, but we don't know exactly. But we know that God is sovereign, that God is in control of human history, and that God is bringing human history toward its appointed end, the end that he has appointed from the beginning, the final return of Jesus, the final salvation of the people of God, the final judgment of sin and rebellion, the final restoration of all things, and the final establishing of God's eternal kingdom. So our calling now, as the people of God, is to do what Daniel did while he was in exile. To turn from our sin, trust in God, believe the gospel, persevere in repentance and faith, until we see Jesus, right? God is calling us to walk with Jesus until we see Jesus. Which, as it turns out, is essentially what we're doing and what we are acting out together uh, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. We're, we're walking with God together, declaring to one another that we trust in Jesus we're committing to God, we're committing to ourselves, we're committing to one another, that we are going to keep on walking with Jesus until we meet him. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is given for you, do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup, after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. 
Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. As often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. If you're a Christian, if you trust in Jesus, if you are a member of the people of God, we invite you to celebrate the Lord's Supper with us, to remember the gospel together, to celebrate the gospel together as a family. I'm going to pray in just a minute. The music teams are going to come up. As they're playing music, you can come kind of forward down the middle and back to your seats down the the side, receive the elements. Take a moment to pray, do business with God, repent of your sin, receive the grace that he is offering to you, and rejoice in the truth of the gospel as you eat and drink. If you're not a Christian, we would ask you to not take communion because the Bible teaches against that. It actually says that you'd be eating and drinking judgment on yourself. So instead of taking communion, we would invite you to take Christ and to trust in him, to save you from your sin, to save you from the wrath of God so that you can enjoy the grace of God forever and ever. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are sovereign over all things, including human history, that you are sovereignly bringing human history toward the end that you have appointed, the second coming of Jesus the restoration of all things, and the establishing of your kingdom. And Lord, we pray as we sojourn together toward that end, we pray that we could trust in you and be faithful so that our names will be found written in your book when you return so that we can be saved from the everlasting judgment that we deserve and be welcomed by your grace into your into everlasting life with you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.